Amen. Well, as the baskets are making their way around, one announcement I want to make you aware of. We have a conference coming up that we're hosting uh, at the Killarne campus January 15th through 17th. The conference is called Of First Importance. It's a conference for pastors, uh, ministry leaders, and uh, really anyone who's seeking to lead or teach in the local church. We're really going to spend a few days considering together what it means to, to prioritize and value and hold up the gospel as the issue of first importance in our lives. And that's a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And we're hosting this conference, and we want to make sure that you know that you're welcome to come to it. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Uh, we think it's not just beneficial for pastors to hear these things. It's beneficial for anyone who's seeking to lead or teach uh, in any context. So if you're leading a fellowship group, teaching in children's ministry, have a leadership role uh, in your vocational life, we think this would be a great opportunity. You can go to oficonference.com uh, to sign up for that. And uh, if you wait until tomorrow, we're going to send something out where you can actually get a discount code for signing up. So you can save a little money. Anyway, be a part of that. We'd love for you uh, to come. That is January 15th through 17th. So mark that on your calendar. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 10. We have been uh, giving our attention to, uh, to the book of Acts. Uh, we spent the fall of 2014, and we're going to spend the spring of 2015 thinking uh, together about the story that's told to us, that's been preserved for us uh, across the years, of how Jesus built his church in the first century after he ascended. This is a story of how Jesus was at work by the power of the Holy Spirit through the acts of his apostles to build the church. And we are the receivers of that, right? We're the recipients of, of that ministry across the years and across the miles. And the last two Sundays, this uh, last Sunday and this one, we're giving particular attention to the story of Cornelius and Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And this is a monumentally important section of Acts. It's the story of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the promises of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I'm a Gentile, and so I'm particularly grateful that that actually went down and that happened. Uh, and that's what I mean when I say we are the blessed uh, recipients and beneficiaries of that. And last week, uh, if you weren't here, you were gone celebrating Christmas, um, that's fine, I'm not bitter. Uh, it, it's fine that you weren't here. Uh, you want to go on the website, forexchurch.com, and hear Pastor Lance's message. It was excellent. Uh, and this is really, in a sense, part two uh, of that text. And what we saw last week in the first 33 chapter, or verses of chapter 10 is that God is sending Peter to Cornelius in Cornelius to Peter through visions in order to bring them together so that he might do something in both of them that is absolutely going to turn the world upside down. Last week we saw that Jesus can make anyone clean. And this week what we're going to see is that there's nothing that can stand in the way of God's plan for an integrated and diverse church. That's where we're going today. And here's the awesome thing about what God is going to do in the lives of Peter and Cornelius. It's not just about the work that he's doing in their lives, right? In the work that he is bringing about in Peter and Cornelius' life, he's also doing something much bigger. He's doing something in the church and in redemptive history that's going to reverberate for generations. Aren't you glad that God is always working both in small ways and in large ways in human history? How many times, if you walk with the Lord for any number of times, 
for any number of years, how many times have you said, man, I understood in just a small way what God was doing there, but now I understand in a much bigger way. He was doing something way bigger than I understood in that moment. We get a little sense of that here. And so if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. You're going to notice as we walk through this text, it's a little bit repetitive. And briefly before we read, I want to speak to that. Is that because... Is that because Luke, who wrote this book, is a bad storyteller? No, not at all. When you see stuff repeated in the Bible, that's like first century bold font. That's first century underlining, highlighting, circling. It's saying this is really, really important. And this is important because in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascended, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel went to Jerusalem and Judea in chapter 2. It went to Samaria in chapter 8. And now here, the gospel is going to begin to go to the ends of the earth. So let's give our attention to the word of God. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. And we will read through eleven eighteen. This is the word of God. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were, extol- they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again to heaven. 
And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your law is perfect. It revives our souls. Your testimony is sure and it makes wise the simple. Your precepts are right and they rejoice the heart. Your command is pure and enlightens our eyes. So we want to come under the authority of your word this morning. Speak to us. Soften our hearts. Open up the eyes of our hearts so that we might receive your truth. True truth that comes from you to us so that we might be changed, so that we might know what you're like, who you are, and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Do that in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab your seats. You ever had an aha moment? One of those moments where all of a sudden all the dots just connect and something that you've missed becomes totally clear. You ever had a moment like that? There's a guy named Ingvar Kampard who had a moment like that years ago. Uh, he was trying to fit a table into a car. And that's hard to do, right? It's difficult. It's frustrating. And he kind of looked at it, tried to figure out a way to do it, eventually had to take the legs off of this really nice table. And he was frustrated. And all of a sudden, Ingvar Kampard had an aha moment. The dots connected for him. There's a better way for us to do this. And he went on to found a company called what? Any ideas? Ikea. That's right, it's his fault, right? That fight you had with your spouse, that was, you can blame Ingvar Kampard. It's his bad. Um, there's not any words in the instructions, right? It's just the little, like, weird-shaped guy. Sort of like you're supposed to be able to, It's terrible. You've never put together Ikea furniture? Well, a blessing on your house. Uh, maybe a, a sadder example of this, uh, of an aha moment, was from the life of Samuel Morse, uh, if, you, if you know who he is. He was a painter, and he had been commissioned to go from his home in New Haven, Connecticut, to Washington, D.C., uh, to, to, to do a, a piece of art. And he received word via letter that his wife had taken ill. And the very next day, he received another letter saying that she had died very quickly. And by the time he was able to make the journey back to his hometown, his wife had already been buried. So Samuel Morse had an aha moment. There's, there's a better way for us to communicate. And so he went on to invent the American Electrical Telegraph, one of the most important advances in communications in recent history. In verse 34, we see Peter's aha moment. Peter's been watching really closely the events of chapter 10 unfold. We can tell he's watching closely because we see him going over the details of it over and over again, and you can almost see him turning it over in his head when all of a sudden everything clicks 
Everything snaps together and it makes sense. And he makes this incredible statement. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. We've got to understand what a radical statement this is for a Jew to make. Peter is a steadfast and devout Jew. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we've got to understand what, what, the, <clears throat> what the situation was like in that day. Before Jesus came, there were two types of people, right? There was Israel, there were the Jews, there was God's chosen people through election, and then there was everyone else. And everyone else was called what? The Gentiles. That's right. And last week we saw that God's plan was always not just for the Jewish people, it was for the nations. But the Jewish people were to be a light to the nations, but what they had done was they had twisted their election into favoritism and ethnocentrism. If you don't know what ethnocentrism means, that's just the belief that, that, that my ethnic group is superior to another ethnic group. Through their traditions, they had entrenched themselves in this favored, this favored status that God had never intended for them. And all of a sudden, Peter gets it. Having watched the sheet come down, having seen the vision, having seen how God was at work in the life, the lives of these Gentile men, he understands the reality that that there is gospel inclusion. If Jesus makes us clean and salvation is by faith in Him, then all of these external distinctions, like the dietary laws, like circumcision, like all of these these, uh, aspects of the law that the Jewish people had been clinging to, they don't matter anymore. Peter gets it. And so Peter preaches a sermon to these men. He says that Jesus is Lord of all, that God anointed Jesus, that He went about doing good, that Jesus was crucified and God raised Him from the dead and made us as the apostles' witnesses. And then in verse 43, He comes to the big finish, sort of the point of it all, the summary statement. To Him, that's Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. It's not about ethnicity. It's also not about religion. We got a, in the description of Cornelius in chapter 10, it says that he was a good, moral, upstanding, devout guy, right? He was a religious man. He gave alms generously. He was God-fearing. But guess what, guys? It wasn't enough for Cornelius. It wasn't sufficient. He needs the gospel. It's not good enough to be a Jew. It's not good enough to be a law keeper or a God-fearer. We need the new birth. We need to be born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that, that we see a lot, that I, I see a tendency toward this in my own parenting, is, is as parents, sometimes we just want to raise little Corneliuses, right? We just want, we want law keepers. We want kids who are behaved and who do all the right things and say all the right things and, and, and keep all of our rules and don't embarrass us. What's the problem with that? That's just taking them the law. It's not taking them to the gospel. One of my favorite parenting quotes is uh, from a guy named Bob Coughlin. He says, our job as parents is not to teach our kids not to sin. It's to teach our kids what to do with their sin. It's to teach them about Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life for them and died for them because he knew they weren't going to be able to do it. He knew they weren't going to be able to perfectly keep God's law just like you just like me. The good news of Jesus is that He saves both religious people and non-religious people. He pursues and rescues, and He is the only way to salvation. What I find very interesting about this 
the content of what Peter preaches to these Gentile believers is if you go back to Acts 2 and 3, if we had more time, we'd actually look at it. But the content of the message is essentially the same that Peter preaches to these Gentiles as he preaches to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3. So you hear a lot uh, in this day and age about contextualizing the gospel. You have to help people see how the gospel connects to their cultural realities and to their experiences and who they are. And that's true. There's a time and a place for that. But something that we need to see here is that the content of the gospel, the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, is the same for everyone, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of life experience and where they are. Everyone is in the same state. We are lost and far from God, and Jesus has come and made a way for us to be reconciled to God through faith in Him. I was really struck by this uh, two summers ago, many of you know, uh, we adopted two kids from Uganda, and uh, we were in Uganda for five weeks. And so every Sunday we were there, they would take me to these villages and have me preach in these Ugandan villages. And it was, it was pretty cool um, in a lot of ways. One, there's no, you know, stuff like electricity. Like, has it ever, has it ever been hot in here? Have you ever had, like, a hot Sunday? They're outside. Like, 52 weeks a year, they're outside for church. They're sitting in these... Uh, these, these green plastic chairs like you get for outside uh, in the garden section at Walmart. They're all gathered around. They don't speak English. I'm preaching through a translator. But it's just so incredible for me to see the gospel message is the same for them as it is for me. And the response that God calls for is the same for every single person on the earth today. Jew, Gentile, American, Ugandan, whomever. I was so strengthened and struck by that. Peter is starting to get it. He gets the fact that the gospel isn't just for people like me. There's a real real point of application for us here. One of the things that the gospel does in us when it begins to take root is it makes us hospitable, right? Several times in the New Testament it says, show hospitality without grumbling and complaining. Seek to show hospitality hospitality. And when you hear that word hospitality, just let me, let's, this is a little aside here briefly. I don't want you to think about Martha Stewart, right? When we hear the, we hear hospitality, we think about like bruschetta and like nice centerpieces and like decorating with the seasons, right? Like you have a a well-apportioned home so that, you know, you can entertain. That's good and there's definitely a place for that, but that's not the biblical idea of hospitality, right? The word for hospitality in the Greek, it's philozenia, Philo means love, and xenia means stranger. It's love for the stranger. It's love for the person who is an outsider. So when you hear the word hospitality in the Bible, I don't want you to think about Martha Stewart. I want you to think about the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10? A Jewish man is taken on the road by robbers. He's beaten and robbed and left for dead, and the rabbi doesn't stop. But who does stop? The Samaritan, the person who would be at odds ethnically with the person who belongs to the nation of Israel. And he cares for his wounds. He takes him to the doctor and, and pays for his, his care. He extends love and kindness and mercy to a person who is not like him. To a person who is outside of his tribe. So how do we seek to show hospitality in this way? A great, a great question for us is just who is Cornelius to you? Who is Cornelius to you? Is it a person of a different ethnicity? Is it a person who is in a different uh, socioeconomic bracket than you? Is it a person who embraces a different sexual ethic 
than you do? The gospel makes us hospitable. And Peter is starting to get it. The gospel isn't just for people like him. It's for everyone. But it's not enough for Peter just to get it. The church needs to get it as well. And so God's got something else planned to make sure that they do. Verse 13, as Peter is preaching, excuse me, not 13, verse 44. While Peter is saying these things, the Holy Spirit comes and rushes upon these Gentiles. Folks begin speaking in tongues and extolling God. It's just this amazing scene. And I, as I'm a preacher a little bit, and so I kind of get this. I can barely get people to say amen when I'm preaching, right? Amen. Can I get an amen there? There you go. It's okay, by the way. It's going to be fine. If we say amen, if we nod, if we say, mm, you know, it'll all be good. We can definitely do that. Uh, but these folks are like extolling God and speaking in tongues in the middle of his sermon. How awesome is that, right? How much do you want that as a preacher for, for people to get the Spirit of God right in the middle of your message? And I love this. It's not anything contrived. It's not anything that is, is, uh, is, is strategic. It's not like they're singing the 30th repeat of the chorus, right? When finally the Holy Spirit comes. It's not the invitation where the lights are just right, every head bowed, every eye closed. No, the Spirit of God just comes in power as Peter is exalting the Son. The Holy Spirit wants to get in on that, and he comes and he fills up these men. By the way, if you're here and you're thinking, man, I'd like to become a Christian, you don't even need to wait till the end of the sermon. Just respond to the Spirit of God and his leading. And Peter and the Jewish Christians who are with him are amazed. And the reason they're amazed is because what's happening is so clear. It is so abundantly clear. They are bearing witness to the miracle of gospel inclusion. This is confirmation of what God has done. God is taking these unclean people and making them clean. This is an undeniable sign that God has accepted these Gentiles as believers. God has has unhooked the velvet rope and welcomed them in to the party. And so like all good Baptists, they start looking for some water, right? Peter says, what's to withhold these people from from being baptized, and just a quick word about baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of the inward transformation that God brings about when He takes away our uncleanness and takes us from death to life. It's a sign of God's acceptance of us and His hold on our lives. And that's the reason why, guys, when we do a baptism at Four Oaks, we like clap and holler and rejoice and yell and scream and and woo and all that stuff because we're witnessing a miracle. God has taken someone from uncleanness to cleanness. He's taken someone from death to life, from hopelessness to a living hope through Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate it when people go down in the water and come out and profess their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the church in Jerusalem did when they heard about this, right? No. No, not at all. We move to chapter 11. Gospel inclusion, which is attended by gospel confirmation, is going to lead to gospel complication. In verse 1, word gets back to Jerusalem. I mean, can you believe it? Church folks are gossiping. I mean, crazy, right? I'm so glad we got past that. Um, No? All right. The circumcision party rises up against Peter. And the circumcision party, just in case you're not familiar, uh, these are Jewish believers who held very zealously 
uh, to the ceremonial requirements of Jewish life. That would be circumcision, dietary laws, not associating with those who are outside of the people of Israel. And they criticize Peter. What do they criticize him for? Associating with unclean people and eating with them. Does that remind you of anybody? Does that like... Didn't they do that with somebody else too? Remember uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 2? The Pharisees and the scribes say, this man, referring to Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. (sighs) See, Peter had stayed with these new believers as a sign of his his solidarity with them. And he's just following in Jesus' footsteps, right? He's associating with lowly people, with the unclean people. He's doing this incredible work of evangelism. The Spirit is at work through him. He's fulfilling Acts 1.8. Just like Jesus said, it's going to go from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Peter is like on the leading edge of that activity. People are coming to Christ and religious people are getting offended. Just like they did with Jesus. Just like they always do saying, how dare you, Peter? You're a Jew. You don't associate with people like that. And I love the way Peter responds. Just simply bears witness to the facts. Here's what happened. Here is a plain, almost dispassionate retelling of what God did. And it's almost like Peter takes him around the bases, right? So first base is, is, is uh, his vision of the sheet coming down. He, he narrates that to them. Second base is, is God telling Peter to, to go with these men to the house of Cornelius. Third base is, is him seeing the way God had prepared Cornelius and his household for Peter's coming. And then to, to drive him home, he tells the story of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And he says, it happened to them just like it happened to us. Guys, do you remember the day of Pentecost, do you remember being in the upper room? Do you remember when we were gathered and we're waiting for Jesus to fulfill this promise that we're going to receive power and all of a sudden the Spirit came and filled us up? Guys, do you remember that day? I remembered the word of the Lord, verse 16, Peter says, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if then... God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Literal translation of this would be, who was I to be able to prevent God? And Peter's got some credibility to make a statement like that, right? Nobody tries to prevent God in the Gospels more than Peter does. You remember, you remember how Peter's just constantly getting in the way of what Jesus is trying to do. Matthew 16, probably my, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. By the way, because if the Bible is made up, if it's not true, if it's all a lie, if the apostles just got together and decided we're going to make up this story so people will believe, don't you think they would take out the part where Jesus says to Peter, you're the devil? Don't you think, don't you think they would have taken that part out? Here's what it says. Matthew 16, 21-23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things 
of man. Guys, if this is all a lie, don't you think Peter would have made sure that part got excised, got taken out of the narrative? He was the head of the church. He probably could have done it, but he didn't because it happened. It's true. It's historical. Peter understood what it meant to stand in God's way. And when it's clear to him that this is something God is doing, he says, no way. Brothers, it is clear. God has done this. And if we're going to criticize these believers, these uh, members of the circumcision party for their actions in verse 3, we need to commend them for what they do in verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's a beautiful phrase. Repentance is the gift of God. You know that, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here it is. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is the gift of God, and he gives it without respect to anything external about us. He does not apportion repentance based on how Jewish you are or how whatever you might be. He gives it as a gift of free grace. And the men who are listening to Peter are starting to see what God has been up to. They're starting to have their own aha moment that this, this thing, this activity that God is engaged in is so much bigger than they ever realized. It's almost like, have you ever seen like a police drama where the officers are like staring at the board, they're trying to solve a murder, and they start to get more and more details and more clues, and the board starts to grow, and eventually they step back, and it's this huge board with pins that are connected by yarn, and they've got this massive board of pictures and details and facts, and they're trying to solve the case. That's what's happening here. They thought it was just for the people of Israel. They had missed it, and they're starting to see that God's plan is so much bigger so much more massive than they had ever imagined. You remember back in Genesis chapter 11, you remember what happens in Genesis 11? It's the Tower of Babel. Man in his pride decides he is going to reach up to God in heaven and so God scatters them. He divides culture and race because of their pride. But in Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter, God makes his incredible promise to Abram. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here it is, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, some of your translations will say nations of the earth, shall be blessed. God's plan from the very beginning was that Israel would be a light to the nations to bless all the families of the earth. And again, last week, Pastor Lance said it, the tragedy of Israel's prejudice is they had taken the very thing that God had given them to humble them, which was the law, and they'd used it to create massive barriers of pride. They had set up all of these traditions that would mean no one except the people of Israel could participate in the blessings of God. Their traditions had erected all of these barriers to the gospel going out from them to the nations. And in Christ, God is shattering those barriers right here in this text. 
And here's the thing. Cornelius' conversion, the Spirit coming to the Gentiles, is not simply a God's mandate that we must accept. It's God's future that we must embrace. Let me say that again. Spirit of God coming to the Gentiles, this, the reality of the gospel being inclusive, is not simply God's mandate that we must accept. It's God's future that we must celebrate. What's happening around the throne in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, it says, The elders fall down around the throne of God as the slaughtered Lamb of God takes the scroll and they cry out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Heaven is celebrating the fact that Jesus didn't just die for one ethnic group. He died for those from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so when we pray, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying into that reality. We're asking God to, to take what's true in heaven and make it true on earth. And guys, there's no ethnocentrism in heaven. There's no bigotry or racism or prejudice in heaven. And this is something that as God's people on the earth, we are to pursue, to show to the world what, what God is like, what he is doing. We're called to pursue diversity and integration in the church. As hard and as complex as it's going to be this side of Revelation 5, we can never lose sight of the fact that in Christ, God is reconciling to himself a people. And he's not only reconciling a people to himself, he's reconciling a people to one another in Jesus Christ. Every tribe and tongue and nation. He's building an integrated, diverse church. And like Peter, I don't want and we don't want to stand in the way of God. We don't want to stand in the way of what God is doing. So what does that look like? I have three points of application. God is building a diverse and integrated church. We don't want to stand in the way. What does that look like? Three points of application. First, ponder your prejudice. We must affirm as people who take the Bible as true, that every person, regardless of their ethnicity, bears equally the image of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. It means everyone has descended from Adam who was created in the image of God. So every person bears the image of God in an equal way. And this is something that, uh, that the Lord has, had really, has really pressed into our hearts. And so when uh, our family decided to adopt a couple of years ago, we really wanted to, to adopt transracially. We wanted to add someone into our family who did not look like the rest of our family. And we did that because we believe this. We believe that the gospel tears down ethnic barriers and unites us in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to do that for my own heart. John Piper, in his great book, Bloodline, says, nothing binds a pastor's heart to diversity more than having it in his own home. I really experienced that uh, in my own home. 
We've seen the beauty of, of seeing the image of God in diversity, in people who bear his image who don't look the same. And diversity is something that we want to celebrate and embrace. Guys, a lot of times people will say, well, we just need to be colorblind. We just need to be not even see race. Is that the goal? No, that's not the goal at all. We embrace the differences between us because they help us understand the image of God in a more full way. There's a pastor named Jerome Gay who says, the gospel isn't colorblind, it's color engaging. There's a Christian hip-hop artist I love called Propaganda, and he has a, a, a song called Precious Puritans where he, he speaks to this issue, and he, he has a line in there that says, colorless rhetoric is a cop-out. You see my skin, and I see yours, and they are beautiful, fearfully and wonderfully, divinely designed uniqueness. So I, when I look at my own children, there are, there are differences in my children through adoption and my children through biology, even, even external things like their hair and their skin. It's, it's very different to, to care for the hair and the skin of my adopted children. And we see the beauty of God's image in the diversity that exists. And so the goal isn't colorblindness in the church because that's not what we see in heaven. The goal is unified blackness and whiteness and Latinoness and Asianness and everything else-ness under the lordship of Jesus Christ, through the blood-soaked offering of Jesus Christ. We must affirm the image of God in those who are not like us. We must ponder our own prejudice. Second, we must embrace Jesus as the end of ethnocentrism. It's a phrase that I read in that book from John Piper. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. There's a story in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus encounters another Gentile centurion, not Cornelius, but a different one. And this man, his servant, is ill, and he asks Jesus if he'll heal him. And he says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house, but if you say the word, he'll be healed. And I understand that because I'm like you. I'm a man under authority. And what does Jesus say to this man? Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is one of those strange and difficult sayings of Jesus, but what he's saying is that there are going to be foreigners who were brought in, people outside of the tribe of Israel who are going to be brought in, and there are some Jews, some sons of the kingdom who are going to be cast out. Out because it's not about ethnicity. It's about what? Faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so what Jesus is saying here is that ethnocentrism is contrary to faith, which makes it contrary to Jesus. We must call ethnocentrism as a We must call it a sin when we see it in our own hearts, and in the hearts of others around us. We must oppose it as a gospel issue wherever we see it. Third point of application, we must let grace move us to love and compassion toward those who are different from us. I heard the story of a pastor from a church like Four Oaks that's predominantly Anglo, and uh, he took some of his, uh, the pastors who work under him and some of his interns and staff 
to a conference at a church that they partner with that's predominantly black. And uh, he was debriefing with these guys after the conference was over and said, you know, what'd you think? Did you enjoy it? And they said, man, it was kind of uncomfortable. It was, it was weird. There was, there was a lot of interaction with the sermon, a lot of amens and yes and speaking. The music was very different. There were like beach balls going at one point. We didn't quite, we just kind of felt uncomfortable. And the pastor looked at him and said, good. I'm glad you felt that way. Because now you know how a black person feels when they come to our church. We're called to compassion and empathy toward those who are different from us and whose experiences we don't understand. And this necessity has been brought into, into sharp relief recently by the way we've seen the nation respond to the deaths of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City, and John Crawford in Beaver Creek, Ohio. All these men died at the hands of white law enforcement officers, and decisions were made by grand juries in each of those cases not to indict the officers by whose hands they died. It's been a major difference in the way folks have interpreted these events based largely upon their ethnicity. Pew Research in the weeks after Ferguson did a poll, and what they found is that in answer to the question, did Ferguson raise important issues about race, 80% of black respondents said yes, and 37% of white respondents said no. There's a divide there. And where these divides exist, grace must move us to tears and compassion. When white Christians see their black brothers and sisters weeping and wrestling over what they perceive as systemic injustice, we must taste the salt as we weep along with them. If we don't understand because we don't share in their experiences, it is wrong for us. It is a sin for us to just say, I don't get it, just get over it. Why is this such a problem? We must weep with those who weep. We must listen so that we might understand better. It's, it must be our goal to seek to understand before we seek to be understood. It's not enough for us to repent of racism. We must also repent of our apathy because we're called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Galatians 6.2 says. We must love our neighbor by entering into his situation with compassion. And here's why we must do it, guys. There are no laws. There are no social actions. There are no government programs. There are no awareness campaigns that can repair the breach that exists between ethnicities in our country and in the world. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, says this, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility guys the battering ram 
of the gospel obliterates the wall of hostility that divides ethnicities. And it's my prayer. I was, last night, I was on my face in my office praying that God would make that a reality in increasing ways at Four Oaks in the years to come. And I hope that you'll join me in that prayer. As we know, it's going to be hard. It's hard because we're proud and we're selfish and our cultural preferences are far more deeply ingrained in us than we even realize at times. In fact, Peter, who's on the leading edge of this change, he's going to screw it up really soon, right? Remember in Galatians chapter 2, Peter's in Antioch and he starts to, to disassociate himself from people who are uncircumcised. And so the Apostle Paul has to mount up and go and oppose him to his face because the gospel is at stake in these issues. We're going to mess it up too. So we need to have grace for one another. And we need Jesus to disciple us in this. Because God is building an integrated and diverse church in preparation for the day that he'll present that church. He'll present us to Jesus in splendor without blemish or wrinkle or spot or any such thing. That's what God is doing. And like Peter, we don't want to stand in God's way. Amen? There's no person who is so unclean that they cannot be made clean by coming to Jesus. Even a murderer like Paul, even a person who struggled with ethnocentrism like Peter, even someone like you or someone like me. We have the privilege of coming to this table, repenting of our righteousness, repenting of our prejudice, and delighting in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes sinners clean. So as the band comes up, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come and receive this gift of God that's been given by God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we just confess that these are hard things for us to consider. We don't like to think that there are things in us that could potentially be standing in the way of what you're doing in the church. Lord, we earnestly...